Hi, I'm John Baird, and I'm very happy to be here and about ready to have a very productive conversation with Mike Vardy. Hi, I'm Edward Sullivan, and I'm about to have a productive conversation with Mike Vardy. Welcome to A Productive Conversation. It's me, Mike Vardy, and this is an interesting conversation because it literally feels like we are getting together in a coffee shop where John starts with me, John Baird, and then Edward joins in, and then John has to leave because he's got to catch a flight to go see Edward. And then Edward and I wrap up the conversation. So it feels like the kind of the conversation I literally had yesterday with a couple of friends at a local pub. The difference is we're doing this virtually, and you get to hear this conversation with the authors of Leading with Heart, five conversations that unlock creativity, purpose, and results. We had... A really great time. I did uh, having this conversation. We we talk about fear. You know, it's a common thing that we talk about on the show, and how it can hold us back. The idea of archetypes and why they constructed the book the way they did, with fear being second but purpose being last. We talk about the idea of the lights on, lights off experiment. We talk about Maslow and his hierarchy of needs and what in the book how they address them and how they maybe explore something uh, based on a conversation that Abraham Maslow and Alan Watts had. There's a lot to get into uh, in this conversation, including how to read the book that we we talk about. So let's get to it. Here's my productive conversation with a couple of really great guys, John Baird and Edward Sullivan. Enjoy. John, thanks for joining me today. We've got Edward joining us here in a bit as well, but I wanted to dive in to talk about the book, Leading with Heart. You're one of the co-authors of the book. Uh, as we kind of get into it a bit, um, right out of the gate, how did you two feed off of each other when writing a book? Writing a book on your own is tough enough. Mm -hmm. Writing a book collaboratively presents its own challenges, right? Yes, yes. Uh, this is actually my, my third book. My first books were academic books done uh, in the business college um, where I talked about leadership and communication, mainly an academic kind of a textbook. This one was so different. I mean, it, it had to be interesting, compelling. We had to tell the stories of our early work at Apple and Nike. And then the current work we're doing right now with a lot of high-flying startups like Bombas and Masterclass and DoorDash that has more recently gone public. I think Edward and I really gelled, right? We gel around our framework. We think about leadership in the same way. But we also write differently. I'm more of an academic in the way I write, right? I like mm -hmm. the frameworks and sort of bring that in. And sometimes that gets in the way of making it interesting. Edward's a really good writer around telling stories. So when I think about, you know, my motivation and my growth, and I think about my desires, my desires are great around learning and curiosity. So Edward really helped me write more compelling stories. He critiqued my stories. This is not interesting enough. This is, you got to make this more, add a little more drama to this. Can you do that and still make the story accurate? So I loved working with him. It was two years in the works and we can talk more about that. I, I want to talk about how the journey begins because right, right in the introduction, you say the journey for this book starts with a question and there's questions that come up. It's like, you know, the premise, the framework of the book, speaking of frameworks, but what separates truly transformative, transformational leaders from the rest? So what separates truly transformational leaders from the rest? And leading with heart, you know, I had a, I had a, a another uh, uh, collaborative effort on the show not too long ago. We'll link to it in the show notes. Love is, love is a business strategy. And we're seeing more of that come to the fore to a degree, but it's, it's, 
it's challenging. It's it's harder to do because you're not talking about KPIs and OKRs and all these. Like it, it there is there is this nuance in this qualitative effort. So, what when you're putting this book together, how important was it for you both to kind of get leaders to look at it and go, oh, this like give them that light bulb or that aha yeah. moment along yeah. the way, yeah. so they can forsake like say quantitative data because I think that that's that's really yeah. a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's really the essence of what leading with heart is really all about. I mean, leading with heart leaders get results. And we are about, as coaches at Velocity Coaching, we are definitely about helping companies get results, take their teams to the next level, take them public, um, just get the highest performance out of those teams. So we discovered, um, and it's interesting to look at this, around all the hundreds of people that we interviewed and all the development plans around the coaching work that we do. We found these conversations that were really in common with these leaders. And it's difficult. I mean, it's a world that doesn't connect very well with each other. So having difficult conversations is, is really a business strategy for a lot of people. You got to have that tough team conversation. We discovered that um, they have them, right? They have them around these five areas. And uh, the book is really developed around these conversations. And uh, lots of tips on how to actually have them and do them in a way that is with heart, but also with accountability as well. Edward has joined us. Edward. Yes, he has. Yes, he has. Edward's joined us. Um, and and actually, this lends beautifully into the question. So what's that, that first question you guys bring up in the book? Uh, and I want to lean into Maslow a bit because Maslow comes up. Abraham Maslow, I talk about his stuff in my work as well. So, Edward, what, why don't you share like that first question? Because I think that that, that le- lends in nicely. It's, it's an opportune time for you to jump into the conversation. Absolutely. Well, you know, first, I'll apologize for um, arriving late. Uh, the first question in the book is, you know, what do you need to be resourceful and to feel creative and do your best work? And apparently I needed to reload Chrome to be able to run <laughs> Riverside. So uh, it took me about five minutes to completely reload Chrome, and here I am. So apologies for being late, Mike. No um, problem. But <laughs> we, we found in our in our research that, um, as, as John indicated, that great leaders know how to have conversations about what their teams really need to do their best work. And a lot of folks um, tend to focus on what what do I need my team to do? I need you to do this. I need you to do that. But they're very rarely asking the question, what do you need to do that work well, right? And, you know, you said we might get into Maslow a little bit here. Uh, We do explore in the book that there are three different levels of needs um, that we found uh, useful for leaders to talk about. The first is we're all familiar with more of like the Maslow's hierarchy. It's those physical basic needs. You know, a lot of people forget to drink water throughout the day. They forget to have lunch. They're not getting a good night's sleep. If you're not getting your basic physical needs met, you're not going to show up as your best self in the office. We've had some clients come to us and say, you know, they're, they're, the, the board is saying, this person's just a bear to work with. No one really wants to work with this guy. He's losing people left and right. And we realize, well, how much sleep are you getting? You know, four hours of sleep is not enough. And there's like this legend in Silicon Valley that founders should be able to sleep under their desk or do 48 hour sprints. And um, that doesn't really work. Right. So when we come in working with a new client, we'll often ask them, you know, let's do a needs assessment. Are you getting just the baseline uh, physical needs? Because if not, you're not nothing we we coach you on is going to have any effect because you're you're starved or you're dehydrated or you're sleep deprived. 
Um, the next level of needs that we explore gets a little bit more into the emotional needs, right? What do we need to feel safe? What do we need to feel like we belong? What do we need to feel affirmed? And we don't often think of those as needs, but as human beings, as social beings, we do need to feel a sense of belonging, to feel safe. We do need affirmation. And that's one of the, the areas where we see more people starved, quote unquote, than just about anything as far as the needs go. Um, we're working in systems now where uh, with hybrid work, we don't have those little social interactions, those water cooler conversations, those coffee breaks and lunches that create the social connection that kind of, uh, you know, bind us together. Yeah, the and energy, instead, the energy around the, it too. Yeah, the energy, like being yeah, in person. There's no, the, yes. You, yes. you yeah. miss that, yeah. right? The human connection. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah. a lot of people are fighting back against attempts to, for um, teams to return to office. You know, people are saying, but we've become accustomed to this. I have, I want to work at home. And that's great. But I don't think most people realize just how starved they are mm. for human connection. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And up until a couple of years ago, we got... 60% of our face time with other human beings in the office, right? right? And now that's all gone. So um, we talk, you know, extensively in the book about helping people get their um, environmental needs, I'm sorry, their emotional needs met. And then the last um, area we do explore in the book is the environmental needs, which is the thing we, we often forget about, right? Well, and, it's like, and that's the thing Maslow forgot about. You tell him the story about how Maslow yeah, and, right. I mean, I, yeah. I would have loved to have been sitting, uh, be a fly on the wall with him and Watts talking. Like, whoa. Maslow wrote his like original mm -hmm. needs uh, hierarchy, you know, back in the 30s or 40s. Right. And then late in his life in the 70s, he lived for a long time at a place called Esalen in Big Sur, California. Yeah. And John and I have visited there. Yeah. It's, you know, this mm -hmm. legendary place that was kind of mm -hmm. founded by hippies and is now the center of the human potential movement. And, you know, we tell a story in the book of Maslow sitting there reflecting on like the beauty and watching the waves roll in and realizing that he'd never felt more creative. He never felt more connected. He was like, I've missed an entire part of the needs hierarchy, mm -hmm. which is the need for beauty and, and, Space. and nature. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, you know, I mean, John and I realized that in writing this book, mm -hmm. I wasn't able to write the book living in New York city. Right. right. I had to go, to California. I went to Costa Rica for a little while. Santa Fe. Um, I had to get out. <laughs> what, what'd you say? Santa Fe, you know, Santa Fe. Santa Fe. Yeah, we, we did all these little retreats to go um, to connect with nature and feel inspired. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, um, and it's something we often dismiss. You know, I would add to that, um, Edward and Mike, around space, thinking about space. And I'm, when I think mm. about that, I think I'm still doing work at Apple and Steve Jobs never got to see the classic spaceship, but he right. was the master designer and architect of the spaceship. It's so impossible to walk from one space to the other without being outside and around him. He was a master at space. He also, and Edward and I have talked about this, he was a master at just shaking it up when things were not working, change the space. He would take people off and go to a different room and we encourage this, don't we, Edward, with our, our clients around just when they're stuck, walk, bring people with you, have a conversation, mm -hmm. but get out of the walls. Because when you do that, oftentimes disruption happens and new ideas yeah. come forth. And he was a genius at the use of space. Well, you bring up the term blind sets, which I had not heard. I mean, number one, I don't think it's 
I think you guys get credit for coining it. I've not heard it before. Maybe maybe someone else did, but I'm going to put my stake in the ground and say <laughs> I've not heard it before I heard it in this book. But it may, can you we, explain? We hadn't either. You hadn't either. Okay, there you go. We, yeah. we now, you, yeah. it's yours. Yeah. Um, it, that brings up a good point, John, the idea of like, you know, jobs noticing, hey, we got to mix things up. We've got to do that kind of, mm-hmm. like what, what are some of when you go into a, a company, because blind sets come up throughout the book. It comes up, you know, several times. Um, what are some of the things that you've noticed with companies that are not necessary that are either trying to transform into leading with heart or just are really stuck? What are some of those blind sets that, that you, that you found? I'll start with you. I'll start with you, John, and then uh, Edward, you chime in. Yeah. Well, there's so many of them. Um, many of them I think are around just how people see themselves, right? Uh, they're, they're blind to the fact that when they're, uh, in the room, <laughs> they're controlling a lot of the conversation. And as a result, no one is speaking. So they're blind to the fact that by their very behavior um, and the way in which they respond to people's ideas is limiting the conversation in a flow. And I would say that one of the things we work the most on is trying to get teams and organizations to be transparent, to build a lot of trust. Uh, We know that lots of people leave organizations, many of them. I don't know what the statistics are, Edward. Is it 10 times from last year from the the MIT Um, study? 10 times more likely to leave toxic environments. Leave because of toxic environments. So in a lot of the the behaviors of leaders, I think their their beliefs around the way in which things need to be done um, limit the conversation. And oftentimes they're not having the conversation about the most important thing. So command, control, you know, controlling conversations, not allowing people to raise issues. What are they thinking but not saying? We talk about this a lot. How do we get that out of the sort of dynamic of the team and move to a different place? And there are other self-limiting behaviors as well. As well. Right, Edward? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, when I think about blind sets, Mike, um, I think about one client we had who was um, trapped in what we call the skepticism blind set. You know, when you're skeptical, you aren't really seeing how good things are, right? You're, you're, you're questioning everyone, you're questioning everything. And it's, it's helpful for a leader to be optimizing and nitpicking and kind of getting in there and get, can we be doing better? Can we be doing better? But when you're completely blind to the fact that there's actually a lot of good in this system, you're not giving people the feedback they need to feel excited and motivated, right? You end up starving your people of something that one of their deep emotional needs, which is recognition, mm. right? So we, we, we end up working with a number of these leaders who are just going around nitpicking. They're perfectionistic. They're, they're deeply skeptical of anyone else's ideas. So it leads to having this whole executive team of disempowered, deflated people. Right. 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 And we need to really turn the tide on that and say, you know, for every, for every one thing you're going to be skeptical about, let's find four things to celebrate, (laughs) five things to celebrate. And let's talk about those, right? (laughs) Right. Exactly. John likes to say, let's catch people doing something good for once. Catch them doing it right, which is an interesting concept. We do, Mike, the Hogan. I don't know whether you know the Hogan, but the Hogan is a a 60-year-old instrument that looks at sort of how people are wired. And it looks at their needs, their challenges. There's a section of it that it's known for, the dark side. It's like, (laughs) this gets a little bit into desires, you know, somewhat, but 
But skepticism as a blind set uh, comes out very high with a lot of founders that I work with. Now, the skepticism probably got them where they are in some ways because they're, they're just you know, in the early stages. You know, that skepticism probably helped that product. They're very product-driven, very technical. So, I mean, they, they just are knowledgeable. They're often right. But as they scale teams uh, and as they bring in more experienced people, if they're always the right person in the room, they're always the smartest one in the room, and their skepticism is overdone, oh my God, they're not scale. And those those companies often don't make it to the next level. Right, right. I want to touch on desire in a bit, but I want to circle back to something that John and I were talking about before we hit record and the idea of purpose. Now, purpose comes up as the last question in this book. What is, you know, what is your purpose? But often people start with that. They're like, well, what's the purpose? And then they go the other direction. So I, I want to kind of uh, get into the, the the reasons why it appears last, like why uh, you know, and we, and we touched on this, John, the idea, I feel like when people are talking about productivity, they, they tend to focus on their daily actions and then they're like, Oh wait, how did I get here? Like, wait yeah. a minute, these actions didn't lead me to what I wanted to do, yeah. but it's so much more challenging for them to go, okay, here's what I want. Now let me, let me take, let me focus, maybe not only take the mm -hmm. actions, but focus on the actions that are going to get me there. And that's a harder road to travel because you have to pause, you have to think, you have to start oh. doing things that aren't as you know, as pr quote productive as most people would think, because mm -hmm. people often confuse activity with productivity, right? So, in this case, I'm curious, and I'll start with you, Edward. Like, why did you, when you were structuring, to say, okay, purpose matters, but we want to make sure that they that it's not. We want to make sure people kind of look at this in the grand scope of things, as opposed to okay, let's do purpose, and then oh, these other things they they'll help you too. So, I, I'm curious. Right. You know, it's, it's funny. We had a very specific conversation about this. I think we were we were down at John's place in Santa Cruz. Oh my God! We, maybe we were walk on the beach, John, weren't we? We and, were. And we had this exact conversation. And I remember, I remember we were talking about the fact that a lot of people now have what I like to call a purpose bypass. They're so focused on the why that they forget to do the fundamental work of preparation to be able to even execute on their purpose, right? Hmm. So we put purpose at the end of the book as a, as a way of saying, this is the culmination of all this other work that you've done. You need to get really clear on what you need and get your needs met. You need to have clearing conversations around your fears, right? You need to have a good relationship with your desires and not get derailed by them. Let's get in touch with what your gifts are. And now that we've kind of tuned the instrument and we've kind of cleared the pathway, let's get very clear on what your purpose is and start executing on it. Because I don't know about you, but I find a lot of people today, they are so focused on their purpose, but they haven't done any of the baseline work to be able to execute well on it. Right. Right. So they're just very well-meaning individuals who are so committed to this lofty idea, but they're unable to pay their electricity bill or you know, they, they say like, well, my purpose is, you know, to be a, a superstar. You know, my purpose is to, to get on the stage and the screen and say, well, like, 
let's have a conversation about your gifts because I don't know you're actually gifted in that. You went down the, you went down the artist path because I've done comedy, acting, all that stuff. That's generally writers, like the creative fields. That tends to be, yeah. I'm going to be this thing and like, you know, art and commerce do collide at some point. So you have to think about how that's <laughs> going to they, they do. Exactly. Well, it, exactly. it's interesting, Edward, about that because I do remember that conversation. I, I find it um, really important to work on those things that people are afraid to work on, right, Edward? I mean, talking about mm-hmm. their fears. We like the fact that the early chapters deal with, I think, some of the most challenging things that leaders have to face, their own fears, the fears of others, creating good climates, et cetera. I will also say that right now, with the way things are in the world and the economy, most of the startups that we're working with are resetting a lot of the just where the company's going, where the focus needs to be. And I am reminding them often, and they often forget this, about their purpose. It's like that doesn't change. When you reorg, you restructure, you even rift and get rid of people, there are fundamental things around the way this company was founded that you've got to remember. So I'm interesting, Edward, I'm coaching a lot of people now on the why. Don't forget the why as you do all this transactional stuff and as you look at the finances, et cetera. And then also ask the purpose question to individuals that are still there in the organization. Are they purpose-driven? Is what they're doing connecting to the larger goal and purpose of the organization? Ask that question because oftentimes we assume that their purposes in their roles and their jobs are connected. Often they're not. You bring up... um... Early in the book, especially as I went through, uh, you know, the exercises, models, things like that, so that people have something to tangibly hold on to. Then later in the book, you talk about like, let's use lights on, lights off as an example, mm-hmm. as an exercise. So, John, I know we touched on this as yeah. before we hit record. Mm-hmm. I'd love to talk about that because I think when you get to those later chapters in the book where you've set the found, frankly, you've set the foundation for the book, and then you get into some of the 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 more qualitative meteor, like you really, mm-hmm. um, this would be an example of like a blind set to an example, like we yeah. talked about. So can you touch on this, this lights on life lights off exercise? Yeah. I, I think rather than, uh, talk about the example in the book, right. Which, mm-hmm. which is my lights on lights off moment when I was lights off and needed to be lights on and I was videotaped. And when they videotaped me and I talked about the things I wanted to do that would bring me joy I was just animated and my nonverbal expressions were there. My eyes, they just identified these lights on moments, which just in quick summary caused me to leave my first company and start Velocity. Um, Edward, you are so lights on. This is really so interesting, right? I mean, Edward and I are talking about the company has really grown, et cetera. And I, Mike, you too, I can tell when your lights on, as you talked about commerce and, and, you know, comedy and all of that kind of stuff, your lights on Edward, when you're talking about where this company might go. And what the next stage of velocity coaching is. And your lights on when you talk about the book and how the book relates to what the next stage of velocity might be. And you just light up. And for me, as uh, the founder of the company, I want to actually reinforce those lights on moments because that's when you're at your best and you need to be doing more of those things that are lights on for you. So that's how I'll talk about lights on, Mike. (laughs) Well, it's nuanced too, right? Like Like you have to... Uh, again, a lot of this stuff relates back to time and productivity, which is why I want to have you guys on the, on the program is like yeah. productivity isn't about like speed and effectiveness. Those are byproducts like efficiency and effectiveness mm-hmm. are byproducts. Mm-hmm. Of, it's really about like, what are your intentions? How are you going to pay attention to it? And attention is the big piece. And mm-hmm. in that okay. experiment, 
And that exercise, you're having to pay attention. Like you have to, if you don't, you're not going to get what you, what you just explained, John. So um, I want to shift and talk about paying attention to fears because that's Mm. the second question. I know we're, we're, we're making our way through here. Um, People don't like to pay attention to their fear as much as they probably should, because they are ironically afraid of fear. Um, which creates this whole cycle. So can we, can we dig into the idea of, you know, the archetypes and the stop, the start, mm-hmm. the continue, because I think, oh, that, that piece in the book, mm-hmm. I think opens the door to the following, the, the desires, the, the, you know, the, the gifts, the purpose, but man, fear, um, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a tricky beast. Edward, do you want to, do you want to yeah, start? Yeah. yeah. You, know, start it. you know, Mike, when, when, we, when we do keynotes on this, um, I just did one a couple of weeks ago. Um, that I was just reviewing before our call, I like to say that the needs conversation is about putting gas in the tank. Mm-hmm. You know, like you have to have a full tank to be able to even get started, right? And the fear conversation is about clearing the way, right? Because fears are those things that just, they get in our way. It's the potholes, it's the blockages, and it's the thing that we think we have the least amount of control over, Right. But we actually have a lot of control over our fears if we're willing to have the conversation, right? Right. If we're willing to get out of the car and move the thing out of the way, right? It does take work. Um, People don't like talking about fear because fear, they think that makes them look weak. Right. Right. Um, We aren't supposed to have fears. We're supposed to be fearless, um, which is one of the great myths, right? The definition of courage is not being fearless, but it's acting in spite of fear, right? And we often forget that. And we introduced the fear conversation so early in the book because we have learned over our combined, John, what's it been, 35, 40 yeah, years yeah, combined coaching. coaching. Mm-hmm. Um, most of that's John's, you know, but, uh, <laughs> but I like to you know, put my, my years in there and just add on top of his. But, <laughs> you know, in this, in this work that we've done, we've realized most negative behaviors in the workplace are the result of people acting out of fear. Mm. You know, yeah. all the toxic behavior, the undermining, the, 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 the politicking, the perfectionism, all right, we get into the archetypes in the chapter. Those are all people acting out of, out of fear, right? They are in fight, flight, or freeze, right? And if we can put a spotlight on the fear, it goes away almost immediately. As soon as we start talking about it and say, what are you really afraid of? Why is this a pattern behavior for you? Where does this fear come from? Who are you worried about impressing? Like we really dig into all that in the coaching. We have major breakthroughs because people suddenly say, oh my goodness, I am causing all these problems in this system because I'm afraid of looking bad or I'm afraid of not making my parents proud or I'm afraid of failure. Or I'm afraid right. of missing my Uber to catch my flight. Speaking yes, of exactly. flight. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny, uh, Mike, I would, I would just add to that the challenge of once the fear is identified, whether it's the perfectionist, the need for approval, the imposter, or, or the types that uh, the reactions that Edward talked about. As a coach, I find it challenging. They can name it, but getting them to present their story you know, the stop, start continues and tell their story. Mm-hmm. And boy, that's where the coaching, some people are less apt to, to be vulnerable, but we want them to talk a little bit about their story. And at that story, when they tell that story, oh my gosh, does that ever connect with people? And it actually encourages and reciprocates people talking about their fears as well around the product. It makes the team dynamic such that they can actually have 
the important conversations. So my Uber person has actually, <laughs> it's on my watch. It's like, uh, yeah, I don't, Mike, I am so sorry I have to go. Edward can take this from here. I have really enjoyed this. I hope you got enough here that was helpful. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll continue the conversation with Edward. We'll just take a quick commercial break. And then when we come back, we'll, we'll finish things off with Edward. But John, thanks for, thanks, thanks for being part of the Mike. conversation. Thanks for the conversation, Mike. Best of luck to you. And Edward, I'll see you in a couple hours. Okay. Thanks again. All right. We're back. And I want to, uh, you know, we, we knew that, that John had to make his flight. If he did, that was his desire. See what I did there? Now I've had Luke Burgess on the show before he talks about the power of mimetic desire wanting. If you've not in the show notes, we'll link to that because this is a guy who knows a lot about, you know, want and desire. And the, the third question that comes up is, it, this is the compelling piece. It's not what desires drive you that's compelling. And this, I think, leads back to the fear part, but what might derail you? Yeah. I want to get into that that concept of, of understanding what the power of desire and how it can both feed you, but also freak you out and even derail you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, desire is, it's an interesting topic because, you know, again, if talking about needs is putting gas in the tank, talking about fears is clearing the road, Talking about desires is how hard are we hitting the gas pedal, right? Mm -hmm. And anyone who's driven a sports car knows if you hit that gas a little too hard in a turn, you can drive off the road, right? So the, the metaphor is, is really powerful for us because people, they, 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 they really get motivated when we're tapping into their core desires, right? It creates action, right? Mm -hmm. But it can also create a lot of, unhelpful behavior. You know, we start that chapter out with a conversation about a very famous cyclist who uh, became the, the world's most uh, infamous cheater of all time. Right. Right. Yep. And the desire to win driving us outside of our values, right. Or the desire to learn even, you know, how could, how could any, how could there be a dark side to wanting to learn? Well, we can get into navel gazing and we can never even take action because we're just stuck in research mode for months or years on a project, right? right. So we, in, in this chapter, we're really encouraging people to have clear eyes when they're thinking about what do they really want, what motivates them, but also realizing what's the tipping point where this is no longer healthy. I'm going to, we're going to, we're not going to get a chance to talk about the gifts component because I, but I think that there's some real value there that people need to get into because it leads right into the purpose part. But what I do want to bring up before we wrap up are a couple things. Number one, uh, the uh, leading with heart challenge, which which closes the book and mm -hmm. we'll wrap up with that. But I want to make sure that I drive home the point. What you talked about in the introduction is how to read the book. And I think this is very, very important because there have been many authors that have interviewed, either collaborative authors or those who work one-on-one -on -one that say, well, you could read the book this way or this way or this way. Oh, it's a reference guide. You can pick it up when you need it, da-da-da-da-da. And, and none of those are wrong. This was, I think, and I'm, I'm trying to think back as to whether or not this is you know, unique, but much like blind sets, where I'd never really seen or heard that term before, you, the way you you and, and and John said this is how you should read this book, I think is not only um, unique in in addressing it, but also incredibly important that it's done that way. So hmm. you go ahead because people are going to buy the book, Leading with Heart, 
And then this is how you need to read this book. Go ahead, Edward. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we talk about it with, um, uh, with our, with our, our colleagues and readers that, you know, when you when you pick up this book, it's not a quick reference guide. It's not a flip through, pull out the, you know, the, the core message and purpose and, and put it back down. Um, it's actually a book to read slowly, to read methodically and to read almost as like an exercise because there's a lot of powerful questions in the book. We get people thinking, um, and then we ultimately get people talking. So a lot of teams who are reading this book, everyone reads through it once for themselves and then reads through it again as a team. Right. Right. It's the kind of book that the questions, um, will open up conversations for you. So you almost want to read through, get to some of the questions, put the book down, consider these questions deeply, do the work yourself, do the work with your team, and then come back to the book. Um, some of my friends have said, oh, I burned through your book in a weekend. It was really amazing, but it got me thinking all this stuff. And now I've got to go back and I'm t- putting notes in the sideline and I have a whole you know, journal filled with, with qu- answers to the questions. It's it's uh there's narratives there's you know interesting stories to to learn from but there's also a lot of challenging questions we think about this as a coaching session right right? we invite people to feel coached by us through the power of the questions i think it's interesting too that that you know while we talked about larger organizations like apple and doordash and things like that as i was going through the book which leads nicely to the leading with heart challenge the leading could be yourself. It could be like, if you are a solopreneur, it could be, you know, like you are the leader, but you're also the employee. How do you have that relationship? Uh, and it, it almost, I'm I'm not going to say it takes you to separate both, both individuals, but it's important. You know, even if you're running a small or solo operation, there's a lot of valuable stuff in here, including the challenge. So can you talk about the challenge before we wrap up? Yeah. You know, we, we close the book with, a real simple challenge for everyone who's read it. And, and that is we encourage people to be the, the brave one, to be the one with courage who starts these conversations, right? And if you're not having the courage to ask your colleagues about their needs or tell your colleagues what you need, that conversation's never going to happen. If you're not the courageous one who says, you know, I'm not feeling very safe right now or I've got some fears I want to talk about, Right. If you're the leader who can say, hey, guess what, guys, this is a scary time and it's normal for us to feel some fear. And let's talk about that. Let's work through the fear. That's leading with heart. Right. As opposed to waiting for someone else to start that conversation. So the challenge, in essence, really is, is is having the courage to start these conversations for yourself and with others. So this has probably been one of the more unique episodes of a productive conversation. I've always said I want them to feel like it's like you're having a cup of coffee with us and stuff. Um, We haven't had an episode where one person's like, I got to go. I got to catch my flight. So there you go. This is the first time. No, don't apologize. (laughs) That's exactly like I want people to feel immersed as if they're like, okay, because that happens all the time in conversations, right? Um, But what I want you to share with everybody before they leave is where they can pick up the book and where they can keep up with your work and the work that John is doing as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So you can uh, read more about the book at leadingwithheartbook.com. It's also available at Barnes and Noble and Amazon and, you know, wherever books are sold. And if there's any curiosity about our coaching work, you can find us at velocitycoaching.com. Edward, I want to thank you and John for having a productive conversation with me today. 
Thank you so much, Mike. It's been great. Big thanks to John and Edward for joining me throughout this episode. Like I told you, this was a very unique one because, you know, we had different times where conversations were happening. It's always fun, can be challenging to have a conversation with more than one person, but I think we pulled it off. I hope you think so as well. If you want to pick up the book, you know where to go, but you also know where to go to get all of the other helpful and relevant links to this conversation. Just go to productivityist.com slash podcast 448 and you'll be good to go. And by the way, if you want to help out the show, there's two ways you can do it. The first way is to visit our podcast sponsors page. Go to productivityist.com slash podcast sponsors and you'll be able to check out the sponsors that you heard mentioned during this episode. Another way to support the show is to subscribe. Wherever you're listening to this right now, all you have to do is hit the subscribe button and that way you won't miss a single episode of what's to come. We've got some great conversations coming between now. I've got them booked all the way till February, 2023. So we've got a lot in the pipeline. Plus it makes it a lot easier to find episodes that we've had in the past, you know, with Luke Burgess, who I mentioned on the show and you know, the, the gentleman behind love is a business strategy and, and all that stuff. Another way to support the show is to subscribe. All you have to do is hit the subscribe button wherever you are listening to this podcast, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Google Podcasts, wherever you are listening to the show right now, hit subscribe. That way you won't miss a single episode of what's to come. It's just going to be delivered to your podcast app. And we've got a lot of podcasts mapped out and planned for the next several months, but it also makes it easier for you to find episodes you're looking for in the archives. Interviews with Chris Bailey, Laura Vanderkam, Gretchen Rubin, Luke Burgess, who I mentioned during our conversation today, and so many more. So again, subscribe to the podcast. It's easy, it's simple, and you will get plenty of productive conversations to listen to that already have happened, as well as many more to come. That's it for this episode. Until next time, I'm Mike Vardy, the host of A Productive Conversation with Mike Vardy, reminding you to stop doing productive and start being productive. I'll see you later.